We're up to chapter 3, Mishnah number 16. Rabbi Yishmael Omer, Rabbi Yishmael says, Havikal Larosh, you should be yielding to a superior, Venoach Lesishchores, and pleasant to the young. And you should welcome, you should greet every person with joy, with happiness. Every person that you meet, you should reach, uh, you should greet them with happiness. Very short Mishnah here from uh, one of the prolific sages of the Talmud, Rabbi Yishmael. Interestingly, in, of course, in the Torah, Yishmael, Ishmael is not exactly a hero. He is the uh, first son of Abraham. And he is banished because he's a bad influence on Abraham's second son, Isaac. But at the end of his life, he comes back and somehow his name became part of the, uh, the names of the Jewish people. And there's even a great sage, and we'll see there's actually several of them, whose name was Rabbi Ishmael, Rabbi Ishmael. So a little bit of background about the author of our Mishnah. He is someone who has sterling pedigree. His full name was Rabbi Ishmael ben Elisha. And it's somewhat confusing because that particular formulation, Rabbi Yishmael ben Elisha, actually applies to multiple individuals in the Talmudic era. And in fact, the very last high priest to lead the nation before the temple was destroyed his name was Rabbi Yishmael ben Elisha, but he is not the current Rabbi Yishmael ben Elisha of our Mishnah who lived around 60, they, they did overlap, but it was around 60 or so, at least, years younger. And it's quite likely that he was a direct descendant, either most likely a grandson of the previous Rabbi Yishmael ben Elisha. You know, it's quite common, you name a child after your deceased father, so you have Rabbi Yishmael ben Elisha, and then you have his descendant also with that name because he uh, was a descendant, a grandson, and therefore he was named after his grandfather who who passed away uh, right before he was born. Um, so they lived in the same era, but not exactly the same the same time. Now it's interesting. They were a family of Kohanim. They were priests, and the original Rabbi Yishmael ben Elisha. There's a few teachings from about him in the Talmud as well. And one of them wanted to share because it's it's a very striking episode and very theologically challenging, uh, the one we find in the Book of Brachos, page 7a. So, of course, someone who is a high priest, they have the responsibility, in fact, the responsibility that's delineated in this week's parsha, to go into the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur several times, and to do the uh, the procedures, the sacrifices, the katoras in the Holy of Holies was done once a year by the high priest on Yom Kippur. So the Talmud tells us what happened once when Rabbi Yishmael ben Elisha, the high priest, the original one, when he walked into the Holy of Holies, what he saw. And this is from the book of Brachos, page 7a. And the statement goes as follows. The great rabbi says, again, Rabbi slash high priest, once I entered the Holy of Holies to do Ketoros, to do the incense offering. And I saw a vision of God. And he was sitting on his throne of splendor. And he told me, this is where it gets a little bit challenging. This is where all the commentary, there's a lot of commentaries, mountains of commentary on this particular statement. And he told me, i.e. God 
conveyed to him in some sort of prophetic way, Yishmael, my son, Ishmael, my son, his name was Yishmael after all, Barcheni, give me a blessing. Now, obviously, God is the source of all blessing. So if God's the source of blessing, how could God be a recipient of anyone, any human's blessing? Very odd. But the story continues. I said to him, continues Rabbi Shmuel Balisha Kohen Gadol, may it be the will before you that your mercy should conquer your anger and your mercy should be revealed upon your treatment of the Jewish people. And you should treat them with the attribute of mercy and you should go above and beyond the call of duty to your children. And the vision, so to speak, nodded to me with his head. So, of course, it's a very troubling vision or like the idea of what he saw. It's a little bit hard for us to understand. And the whole notion of God asking a human for a blessing and the nature of that blessing, it's it's a very interesting and intriguing uh, and and perplexing maybe uh, Talmudic narrative. But again, this this shows us that this is the most likely – no no one seems to know for sure. I didn't find a definitive uh, link. But most likely the grandfather of the Rabbi Shmuel of our Mishnah, he was part of that previous generation. The temple is still around. We have a very righteous high priest. And he actually is having some degree, some some vision, some transcendental experience of prophetic nature – in the Holy of Holies, on Yom Kippur, doing this sacrifice and is recorded for posterity. And his grandson, the author of our Mishnah, is going to begin his life as a very young child in captivity as a hostage in Rome, because that's after the destruction, after Jerusalem, Judea is laid waste by the Romans, and they take hordes of slaves, including a little baby named Yishmael ben Elisha, after his grandfather, who was tragically martyred by the Romans. The Romans come, the Romans come to, to Judea and they turn the place into a wasteland. In fact, back to the previous Rabbi Yishmael ben Elisha, the grandfather, he was one of the first people that was, uh, that were executed, uh, in martyrdom by the Romans. The Romans took the two titular heads of the Jewish people, the Nasi, who was the, the, the head of the Sanhedrin, who was the descendant of Hillel, who was akin to the king, if there would be a king, also a great sage, his name was Rabbi Shimon, and they take the high priest and say, okay, both of you guys, we're going to execute both of you. And there's a very long and tragic narrative about what happened, each one of them saying, no, 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 kill me first, I don't want to see the the tragic death of the other one, and eventually they 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 they, they roll dice, to determine which one was which, and they 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 beheaded the great Rabbi Shimon, and then there was a whole ruckus, and then the emperor came, and he saw Rabbi Yishmael, the high priest who was still alive, and his face was so radiant, he was so beautiful, and then his daughter came, and so I was like, you can't kill this man, he's so beautiful. So what they ended up doing in classic Roman barbary, they decided to flay his skin, and create like a mask of this beautiful luminous visage. But kill him that way. Really horrible, really terrible, and really tragic. But it is interesting that both Rabbi Yishmael, the original, the high priest, and the Yishmael of our Mishnah, the Talmud talks about how beautiful they were. 
And the explanation that our sages tell us is that the reason why they were so beautiful is because he, he went into the Holy of Holies. This was not some sort of physical beauty. It was a certain revelation of their soul. They were so connected to the spiritual level. He went to the Holy of Holies, of course, the epicenter of holiness in our world. He drew out a certain degree of holiness that was manifested within them. So his face was was radiant. His face shone from the spiritual origins that he tapped into as a coin, as a coin god, as a high priest in the Holy of Holies. And I'll, I'll add that you could still see this today. If you see a great Torah sage, a real great Torah sage, you'll notice that they have a certain glow to them. It's, it's, a, it's an amazing thing. I, I personally saw it. And there's a certain sparkle. There's a certain radiance that you could see on the face of a great Torah scholar. And it's, it's not just a good tan. If someone's a great Torah scholar, they're probably not spending too much time at the beach anyhow. But it's a certain, it's a certain, almost as if their, their skin is, is lumescent. It's, it's glowing. It's an amazing thing. And it's not something which will, you know, it will jump out at you. But if you look at it, you'll notice it. And we read about, of course, Moses, his face is shining as bright as the sun. Of course, that's the, the peak of human experience. Uh, of human achievement, of human greatness. But as we expose our soul within us, it's going to shine forth. And each, each one of us are on our own degree, we're going to have a certain, uh, a certain revelation, so to speak, in, in the literal sense of our soul. And the great high priest who went to the Holy of Holies, it, it shone to such a degree that people were like really stricken. Uh, they were really taken by his, by his countenance. So that's Rabbi Yishmael ben Elisha, the high priest. Now, the author of our Mishnah, we're told in the Talmud, when he was a young child, he was taken captive to Rome, and he was placed in jail. And you think if it's a tragic situation, he wasn't the only one. There were probably thousands, maybe tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of Jews who were displaced and taken captive uh, after the Romans destroyed, essentially, uh, all of Judea. And the pockets of Jews escaped elsewhere. As we know the story, of course, the Masada story has been lionized in, in, in modern Israeli culture. But that's one example of, 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 of pockets of Jews that are escaping, that are fleeing. Some of them make it, some of them don't. But a huge percentage of these Jews are taken to, to Rome. Now, as we know, as we spoke about in the past, the sages in Yavne, in Yavne are granted a reprieve. They're allowed to continue their operations, and they're not attacked. There's a few of them that are, like we mentioned, but for the majority, they're allowed to uh, they're allowed to flourish in the new home of the academy in the city of Yavne, which is in the coastal areas. And one of the great sages in Yavne is the great Rabbi Yehoshua. We've spoken about him in the past, Rabbi Yehoshua ben Chananya, and he was a liaison between the rabbis in Yavne who are now the official heads of the Jewish people, all the other heads are gone, and the Roman overlords in Rome. So he makes a trip to Rome, and he's informed that there is a beautiful young boy who has been imprisoned by the Romans. So he makes his rounds to the jails, and he goes to investigate but he can't go into the cell because the cell's locked. So he calls out a fragment of a verse in Isaiah. 
he calls that into the jail cell and he wants to see if the child can put the other piece of the puzzle together. So the, the verse in Isaiah, it's a very apropos verse to the situation, to the state of the Jews at the time. Who gave up Jacob for a spoil and Israel to plunderers? Who allowed this to happen? Why did this terrible tragedy befall us? That's the beginning of the verse in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 24. And the little boy screams out the other half of the verse. Hello, Hashem Why is it not the Lord? It is he against whom we have sinned and we didn't walk in his ways and we didn't listen to his Torah. That's why we were subject to this terrible treatment. So this young boy, he's very beautiful and he obviously has a command of scripture. Rabbi Yeshua is taken and says, I am certain this young boy will become a great teacher in Israel. I'm going to redeem him now. He goes to the Romans and says, I will pay whatever it takes to get this boy to buy, to, to, to free, to free him. And indeed, he paid a tremendous amount of money, a king's ransom for the child's release. And this young boy became the great Tana Rabbi Yishmael ben Elisha, the author of our Mishnah. Now it's interesting. There's a law of negotiations with hostages. We know whenever in Israel there's a, like a, there's a body of a soldier and they trade it for a thousand terrorists. And we're like, that doesn't seem to be, um, a fair exchange. I said it's an asymmetric exchange. But interestingly, there is a Mishnah in the book of Gittin that tells us that we're not allowed to redeem a hostage more than the fair value. Why? Because the second you redeem a hostage more than fair value, what does that encourage? That encourages more hostage taking. It's kind of like when you have uh, this uh, the the head of the founder of the Getty Oil Company, his grandson is taken hostage, and he's like, "No, I'm not going to pay anything. Sorry, nothing." Because if you do that, you'll take my other grandchildren as well as hostages. I'm not interested in in that. So that's a law. Actually, it's a law that the, even though it's one of the greatest mitzvahs is to redeem hostages, to take them away from captivity, but only for a fair price, not more. And here we see that this great rabbi of Yeshua is willing to say, I'll pay whatever it takes. Are you allowed to pay whatever it takes? Interesting question that the commentators ask. And they give two answers. They say, number one, there's difference. Number one, there's two differences. Number one, Normally, when someone is a hostage, we're not worried about their health, their life, their well-being. Because they're a hostage, they're an asset to their overlords. The Romans, they have a tendency towards violence and towards brutality. And if this boy is not going to be redeemed, it's quite likely he'll end up dead. In that case, the rules don't apply, number one. Number two, he says, he was so confident. This was not some ordinary boy, some ordinary child. This child was destined to become one of the great sages of Israel. He knew it for sure. In that case, the rules are scrapped. This child can indeed be redeemed at any cost. And uh, indeed, he was redeemed. Then he became the great, the great sage and the great author of many, many, many teachings in the Talmud, some of them that we'll talk about now. Now, it's interesting. In the book of Gittin, page 58a, where it tells the story about the redemption of Rabbi Yishmael ben Elisha. It goes on right afterwards to tell another story, very similar kind of story, about the children of Rabbi Yishmael ben Elisha. 
But as we told you earlier, there's two Rabbi Shmuel ben Elishas. So there's one of them that's the high priest, and there's one of them that is probably his grandson. And then it talks about the two, the son and the daughter of Rabbi Shmuel ben Elisha. And it's not clear, are they the, the son and daughter of the previous one, the high priest? Most of the commentaries seem to think that, it, that, that they are. Even though it comes right after the Talmud tells the story of the redemption of Rabbi Shmuel ben Elisha. And then right away it talks about the children of Rabbi Shmuel ben Elisha, which seems to imply that it's the children of the one we, person we just were talking about. Regardless, this story is representative of the, uh, of the, of the times in which, uh, our author lived. And it tells that two children were taken captive again by Romans, uh, a boy and a girl. And they were descendants of this family, very beautiful. And consequently, one of them ended up as a slave for one Roman master and one as a slave woman for a second Roman master. And they were talking, these two Roman masters says, well, I have the most beautiful male sage you have ever, the male slave, I have the most beautiful male slave you've ever seen. And the other Roman's like, well, I have the most beautiful female slave you've ever seen. So they came up with a great idea. Let's put these two slaves together. And the resulting children will be astonishingly beautiful and we'll split the babies. That was the plan. Not literally, but split the babies. You have half, I have half. So they take these uh, two people and they put them in a room in, in, in night and we know what will happen. Let nature take its course, right? That's that's the plan. So this young boy is in the corner and he knows that there's this maidservant there, this slave woman. He doesn't know who she is. But he's like, wait a minute. I'm, I'm a priest. I'm a descendant of a whole line of high priests. I'm not going to belittle myself. I'm not going to behave like this. With some slave woman? And the girl's near the corner. She's like, I'm the daughter of the priests. I'm the daughter of the high priest. I'm the daughter of a whole line of high priests. I'm not going to be with this slave on the other side of the room. So for the whole night, they're on different sides of the room. In the morning, the light comes up and they notice that they're actually brothers and sisters. They've been reunited. And the Talmud describes their reunion. They were overjoyed and they hugged each other and they were crying to the degree they cried and they mourned until they passed away. That's the the end of the story. So we don't know exactly what happened to them, what the long story is, but they obviously they never uh, they never uh, produced any of those beautiful babies that uh, the Roman uh, owners were hoping for. So re- regardless of we, it's not like we said, like we said, it's not clear if these. Children were sons of the current author of Mishnah or the high priest. Regardless, I think the, the message of what it conveys regarding the times in which they lived is, is very haunting, uh, and very uh, relevant. So I want to go through some of the teachings, some of the statements, some of the stories of Rabbi Ishmael as an adult. He becomes one of the great sages of Israel. He becomes a partner and sparring mate with Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Tiva, of course, becomes the, the greatest sage of the land, and he has an academy, and all the great students flock to his academy to study by Rabbi Tiva. There is a second academy, and that's the academy of Rabbi Yishmael. So you have two academies, which was common, like it was the academy of Shammai, academy of Hillel, the academy of Rabbi Tiva, and the academy of Rabbi Yishmael. And some students went here, and some students went there, and some students 
did the rounds by both of them. And the Talmud goes on to say that this, the, the Mishnah is written by Rabbi Meir, the Tosefta by Rabbi Nechemia, the Sifra by Rabbi Huda, the Sifri by Rabbi Shimon. Essentially, these are the books that are the canonizations of the Oral Torah. And these are the books written by these students, but all of them studied by Rabbi Akiva, and therefore they're all continuations of the teachings of, of Rabbi Akiva. Now, it's interesting. Uh, to my knowledge, I cannot remember in the Talmud where the Talmud says it was taught in the Academy of Rabbi Akiva. Those words don't appear. To my knowledge, may, I may be wrong, but I don't think it appears. Whereas the terms, it was taught in the Academy of Rabbi Yishmael, appears everywhere. And I think the answer is, is because everything that is not attributed is indeed, in effect, a teaching from the Academy of Rabbi Akiva because that became the basis for the books of the Oral Torah, whereas the ones that are the one-offs, so to speak, those are the teachings that are, are preserved and are canonized in the Talmud from the Academy of Rabbi Yishmael, those begin with the preamble, it was taught in the Academy of Rabbi Yishmael. So I want to share some of the stories that we find about Rabbi Yishmael and his teachings. So the first one, a very interesting teaching in the book of Nidarim. Nidarim means vows, and a vow is when someone creates a new prohibition that did not exist prior. We have the ability with our speech to create new prohibitions that did not hitherto exist. So for example, what if someone says, I make a vow that I will never marry this woman because she's really ugly. But it turns out she's actually pretty pretty beautiful. Is that a valid vow? Is that not a valid vow? I'm not going to marry this woman because she's too short. But actually, she's pretty tall. Again, this is an example of a vow that was made upon that was made upon mistaken pretenses. He thought she was really ugly, but she was really beautiful. He thought she was really short, she's really tall. So therefore, says the Talmud. These vows don't have any validity because a vow based upon mistaken pretenses is not valid. And then it gives a story. There was a man who made a vow to never marry his niece. And we've mentioned in the past that the Talmud encourages someone to marry their niece. It's an idea. So it's it's, it's a union that is encouraged, the, the, the daughter of his sister. But this man says, I'm never going to marry my niece She's so ugly, I'm not interested in her. I made a vow. So they brought this young girl to Rabbi Yishmael's house or to Yishmael's academy. And he hired cosmetologists and he hired people to make her beautiful. You know, she was uh, poor and therefore she was bedraggled. And he says, okay, we're going to make her beautiful. He made her beautiful and he brings back the, uh, uh, the individual, the man. He says, okay, look at this woman. Look at this woman. Is this the woman that you made a vow to not marry? You made a vow not to marry the ugly one, ugly one. But she's actually indeed beautiful. So he says to Rabbi Shmuel, no, I never made a vow on this particular woman because she looks great. He says, okay, well, this vow is annulled because it was a vow, vow made upon mistaken pretenses and continues the narrative at that time. Rabbi Shmuel began crying and he says, the Jewish girls, the Jewish women... 
They're beautiful. But what happens? They're poor. They suffer. And that causes them to be less beautiful than they truly are. How unfortunate is it that the beautiful women that we have, they're going through such difficult times, and that's why they don't look as beautiful as they really are. And the epilogue of the story, this beautiful story, is that when Rabbi Shmuel passed away, all the women of Israel, you think about it, a great sage passed away, the women tend to not be the sages, you would think the, the men would cry, the men would mourn, the men would lament, the men would eulogize. That's what you would think. Here was fine, there was also the women as well. The women of Israel would cry and they say, and they would announce, women of Israel, gr- girls of Israel cry over Rabbi Shmuel who passed away. That's the end of the story. He was someone who was such an ally for the women, for the girls, that when the, when he died, he uh, was mourned by the women as well as the men. Now, Rabbi Shmuel had a very difficult life. We're told that uh, two of his sons passed away. It's not clear if this is a reference to that story we spoke about earlier, where the kids were taken to Rome. Or maybe it was, it was that time, maybe it was uh, other instances. Uh, regardless, there is a, uh, a narrative where the great sages of his time, his, his colleagues, his contemporaries, they came to comfort him. They came to visit him. It's a very long account, the Book of, Book of Moed Cotton. Page 28b, it tells of Rabbi Tarfon, Rabbi Yosei Rabbi Elizabeth Nazaria, Rabbi Tiva, all the sages that we're going to meet in Perkeavos, again, the sages from this era. They come to, they come, they come to meet him and they say, be careful. He's a great sage. Be careful what you say. Don't interrupt each other. It seems like they prepared for, uh, for this encounter. Uh, pretty seriously, and there's a very long account. I don't want to go through it now, but regardless, I think it's very powerful to look how the sages comforted each other. The comfort is about how sad they are. Uh, so, for example, one of them says, "Well, when Nadav and Avihu, the sons of Aaron, when they died, everyone cried, and now your sons died, and how much more we should we cry?" And that was the comfort. Interesting angel. You know, it's not like about joy; it's about focusing on the pain, dwelling, ruminating upon it. And that indeed is the way to provide comfort, to say like the Jewish people cried for this and this individual and how much more must we cry for for your children? There's another episode. I think this is a very illustrative episode, uh, not quite as uh, existential, but a very interesting episode. You find in the Talmud, the book of Shabbos, page 12b. The Talmud gives us a rabbinic edict regarding Shabbos and reading from a oil candle. How so? What's the problem? Problem is, there's a concern. The rabbis told us there's a concern. Someone's going to read to the candle. And we know at the end of the, uh, as the oil is about to diminish, so there's very little bit of oil, the, the, the candle starts flickering. So there's a tendency to tip it a little bit, to pool the oil in one place. That way, the wick can draw the oil and have a very nice light. And to us, this is not something we're used to because we have electric lights. And that's what we use. But at a time where the only light was candle and you're reading from a book and you're trying to make out the words and it's flickery, it's not so pleasant. So what people would tend to do, certainly during the week, is you would tip the candle a little bit, tip, tip the glass a little bit. That way you could have a clear light. The problem with that is that's prohibited on Shabbos. You're making a fire or you're assisting a fire. That's prohibited on Shabbos. Say the sages... Because we're concerned that something like that may happen, you may tip the candle in order to promote the light. 
Therefore, you're not allowed to read by a candlelight at all. That's the, that's the edict they made. You cannot read by a candlelight on Shabbos at all. Doesn't matter how tall it is. Even if the candle's, you know, 10 feet up in the air, doesn't matter. Once they made the rule, it doesn't matter. Even if in this particular case, the concern of you tipping it doesn't apply, still, that's, that's the nature of the, of some of the edicts of the rabbis. They made the edict, even if it's 10 feet up in the air, you can't reach it, still don't read from the candlelight. Unless there's someone else reading with you. If there's two people, we're not worried about, you know, if there's two people, one will make sure that the other one doesn't do it. Uh, so unless they're reading a separate thing. If, if one person is reading one, one thing here, the other person is reading another thing there, they're each on their own and it doesn't count. Uh, uh, if there's a huge fire, then they're not even close to each other. And then even if there's multiple people, the concern is still valid. Again, that's the nature of, of how rabbinic enix works. That's the background of the story. So Rav is one of the sages of the Talmud. He says that if the man is a is a honorable, respectful man, someone who won't tip the uh, candle even during the week, then he's allowed to read from a candlelight. That's what that's the context of of, of this discussion. So if someone's a very respectful person, not someone who's going to go involved, get involved with the candles, no, someone a more dignified person, then they could read by the light because they're not going to tip it. So Tom asked a question from the following story. Rabbi Shmuel ben Elisha, says the Talmud, he declared upon himself that I'm going to read, and you know what? I'm not worried. I'm not going to tip it. And what happens? He was reading once, and the light started flickering, and he was about to read to do it, and he stopped, and he's like, aha, the words of the sages are brilliant. They knew what they were doing when they made those edicts. That's the first version of the story. The second version of the story is that no, he actually read and he forgot about Shabbos for a second. And he did, he indeed tipped the candle and he wrote in his ledger, in his diary, he wrote, I, Yishmael ben Elisha, I read on Shabbos and I tipped the candle. And when the temples rebuilt, I will bring a fat animal as a carbon chatas, as a sin offering, because I did a sin. When someone does an accidental sin, they bring an, a sacrifice to atone for it. And that's what we wrote and he wrote in his ledger. That's the, that's the story. But the question is, according to Rava, Rava says that if someone's a dignified person, then they're lottery because they're not going to tip it. Well, it seems like Rabbi Shmuel. Who's more dignified than Rabbi Shmuel? And we see the law still applies to him. So the Talmud gives a brilliant answer. The Talmud says, yes. Generally speaking, someone's dignified. Someone's kind of above. They're, 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 they're a higher stature. They can read from a candlelight. However, Rabbi Shmuel ben Elisha, Rabbi Shmuel ben Elisha, the great sage of our Mishnah, when he would study Torah, he was not aloof. He was not of high stature. He was so concerned with trying to study. That's the only thing that mattered. And consequently, He's not viewed as someone of high stature with respect to Torah study because there he's like anyone else. It's the great equalizer. When someone studies, then they're like everyone else and that's, that was his attitude. When he would study, he wouldn't say, oh, I'm better than everyone else. No, he would study like, like every common person and therefore there was a concern for him that he would tip the candle. There is another story. This is a very clever exchange that happened over here. In the book of Menachos on page 99b, the Talmud records how Rabbi Shmuel's nephew, he asked a halachic query to Rabbi Shmuel. 
am I allowed to study Greek philosophy? Is there any pro- prohibitions, any halachic problems with studying Greek philosophy? I already studied all of Torah. I, it's not like I'm going to study Torah no more. I'm an expert. Can I study Greek philosophy or not? So what does Rabbi Ishmael respond to him? He says to him, let's see what the verse says. The verse says that you should not depart from the book of the Torah and you should study it day or night. It doesn't say, it doesn't have a clause, well, if you're a great Torah scholar, then you don't need to study day and night. It just says, you study Torah day and night. It's a verse in the book of Joshua, chapter 1, verse 8. Study Torah day and night. So you could study Greek philosophy. If you find a time that's not day, not night. Because if it's day, you got to study. If it's night, you got to study. If it's not day, if it's not night, then you can study Greek philosophy. And some of the commentaries, by the way, they add. And they say, well, then maybe that seems like that's when someone goes to the bathroom. Because that's technically not day, not night, because you can't study Torah there. Maybe that would be the avenue that you would be allowed to, to, to study it. Interesting exchange here between Rishmael and his nephew, who was a great Torah sage indeed, but someone who he dissuaded from studying Greek philosophy. Now, there's another debate in the Talmud, also one in which Rabbi Ishmael participated, but I don't want to get too technical, but if you study these two teachings back to back, it seems like they're, it seems like they're in conflict. How so? The book of Brachos, page 35b, asks the following question. It quotes the same verse in Joshua. You should study Torah day and night, which seems to imply day, night, all the time. And then it quotes a verse that we read in the Shema. The Shema tells us, Ve'asafta de'ganecha, you should gather in your grain. Well, if you're gathering your grain, what does that tell us? It tells us that you plowed your field, you planted your field, you, now it's time to gather in, it's time to harvest. So gathering, planting, plowing, harvesting are things which are not Torah study. So how do we reconcile? The verse says you study Torah day and night. Here we see that sometimes by day the person is going to be plowing and planting and harvesting and bringing the gathering in the, the produce to their home. Well, which one is it? So what's the answer? So Talmud introduces two different answers. The first answer is Rabbi Yishmael. He says, listen, Live the way of the world. The way of the world is you have to make a living. So yes, of course, you're supposed to study Torah day and night. Of course. But you still have to sleep. You still have to eat. You still have to make a living. Rabbi Shmuel's answer is the one that seems to be more pragmatic from our perspective. Yes, you're supposed to study Torah day and night, but you also have to do other things. You also have to make a living. And that's the way of the world. You can find a way to try to harmonize Torah study along with making a living. That's that's his answer. It seems very reasonable to us. Now, the question, I don't want to get bogged down by this. Here, he seems to say that study Torah day and night, yeah, with some exceptions. Whereas in the book of Menachos, when the question was posed regarding Greek philosophy, he says study Torah day and night all the time. There's no room for for Greek philosophy. And the, the answer would be is that either you had something against Greek philosophy or that there's a difference between making a living and studying philosophy. Philosophy is something which is an added bonus. You don't need it. You don't need it to feed your family. It's something that you want to do for intellectual uh, curiosity. So that's that's important, but it's not more important than Torah. 
Whereas to make a living, you have to have a living. It's your responsibility. And sometimes you have to even close the book in order to, to make a living. Whereas you won't close the book to study philosophy. That's probably the simplest answer. Regardless, the Talmud goes on and says, well, there's an alternative reconciliation of this dilemma. Again, the dilemma is one verse says study Torah day and night. Second verse says gather in your grain. Which one is it? This is from Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. And if we are gaining familiarity with the sages of the Talmud, we know that Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai is the one who is no holds barred. Take no prisoners. No negotiation. No, there's, there's no room for any sort of anything. He was one who lived in a cave for 13 years studying Torah, subsisting on a carob tree in a stream of water. He was the one that was not willing to yield an inch to the Romans. So much so they wanted to kill him. So he has a different solution. He says, the reconciliation of these two verses are as follows. There is an idealized world, and then there is a suboptimal world. The idealized world is study Torah day and night. That's it. What's going to be feeding your family? You leave that to God. God's a billionaire. He'll take care of you. And that's one verse. The second verse where it says you should gather your grain, that's in the unfortunate situation where you don't want to do everything that's right. You don't want to study Torah day and night. You don't want to rely on God. In that case, okay. You want to work? God will let you work. You'll have to make your own food. It's your choice. Do you want God to provide? Do you want your, your, your necessary provisions to be provided by others so you can study Torah day and night? That's one option. The second option is, okay, you want to have this on your, on your shoulders? Sure, you could have it on your shoulders. That's his resolution to this conflict. And then the Talmud gives us a survey. It says, a lot of people tried both options. Some people tried Rabbi Shmuel option, which is, okay, study Torah, but sometimes he closed the book to go do work and try to do, to balance the two. And most people that tried that, it worked for them. They were able to find the harmony between these two pursuits. A lot of people also tried the Rabbi Shimon Bar Yechai variety. Study Torah, that's it. What's going to be with my family? Who's going to feed them? We'll leave it to God. Other people take care of us. Don't worry about it. And most people that tried that didn't really work out for them. It's the resolution of, of that dispute, which seems to imply that this is not a real argument in theory. It's an argument in, in practice. Everyone agrees that if someone can be like Rabbi Shimon Bar Yechai himself, can be totally committed, a thousand percent, and not, not, and not have any hesitations whatsoever, then God will provide. But most people don't have that same, that, that, that same fortitude, that same wherewithal to do that. And therefore they tried it, but it was too hard for them and they couldn't do it. And then you know what? They ended up with not this and not that because their Torah suffered and their livelihood suffered because they had neither this nor that. And therefore what it's telling us is unless you're a once in a million kind of character like Rabbi Shimon, a better bet for you is to adopt the Rabbi Yishmol policy, which is like we would say is much more conducive to, to, to modern heirs. And that is try to find a balance, strike a balance between Torah study, it should be your priority but not to the degree that you're neglecting making a living, because if you do that, you might end up hungry and also bereft of Torah. Because there's so many beautiful 
teachings about Rabbi Shmuel about on so many different areas. I'm going to share a few more, especially because the mission is very short. There's another amazing story in the Talmud, in the book of Yoma, on page 85a, and it asks the following question. How do we know that if someone's life is in danger, they can override Shabbos? So we know, you know, just a week ago, two weeks ago, I took the Uber to the hospital to have, because my wife had a baby, right? So that's something that everyone knows. If, if someone's life is in danger, then you do everything that is needed in order to provide health, well-being. Everyone knows that. Well, how do we know that? What's the source? What's the origin? After all, the Almighty says, the, the, don't desecrate Shabbos. How can we say that we can desecrate Shabbos if someone's life is at stake? That's the debate in the Talmud. So it brings a story. There was a, a contingency of rabbis, some of the greatest names in the Talmudic era. They're walking together. This is what they're discussing. Rabbi Shmuel's there. Rabbi Tiva's there. Rabbi Elizabeth Azariah's there. And... Rabbi Yishmal, the son of Rabbi Lazar Manazari is there, and another guy named Levi Hasader. And this is, this is the discussion they're having. And each rabbi is proposing their source. And Rabbi Shmuel is the first one to go. And it's interesting that, you know, Rabbi Kiva is there. And who goes first? Rabbi Shmuel, he's the one who proposes first. It seems like he was a, a sage of titanic proportions. And he says, he quotes a verse in Exodus. The verse in Exodus reads, chapter 22, verse 1, if the ganev, if the thief is found burrowing in to someone's home and you kill the guy because some, this is a home intruder. You kill the home intruder. Then you are not guilty. You are not liable. The, the, the homeowner is not liable. This person coming to steal. What do they want? They want your jewelry. We don't know. We, we don't assume that they necessarily have violent intentions. They want money. And still, you're allowed to kill them. So you're even allowed to kill someone, which murder is the worst, right? You're allowed to murder someone because maybe they're coming to kill your life. So certainly, when someone's life is definitely in danger, you're allowed to desecrate Chavez, which is comparatively more minor than murder. Very powerful proof from Rabbi Shmuel that someone's life, when someone's life is in danger, they're allowed to even override to supersede the Shabbos. And there's another long teaching here, I'm not going to go through it, uh, that talks about Rabbi Meir and how he was a student of both academies and back and forth and all the teachings that he taught here and he taught there. And you can look that up in the book of Erevin, page 13a, if you're interested. I want to go through some of the other teachings that are recorded in the name of the academy of Rabbi Ishmael. So one of them is as follows. In the book of Brachos, page 19a. If you see a Torah sage who does a sin at night, the following day, don't malign him because most likely he repented. Do you, someone, you know for sure someone did a sin? Maybe an egregious sin, sin at night. And the next day, this guy's a sinner, Right? You cannot malign him at all because he most likely did tshuva, he, did, he repented. And the Talmud goes on to say, well, don't say that he most likely did. If he's a true sage, then he for sure did. I think it's a very valuable lesson maybe for our our society, certainly, um, our culture even, that when someone made a mistake 20 years ago, 
people like to bring it up a lot. And here we say, someone made a mistake yesterday. And we don't even know that they repented. But we can assume that they did. Already, don't treat them any differently because repentance works for God. It should work for us as well. If God can forgive, we can forgive. If God could overlook, we could overlook. And if they repented indeed, they should have no residual blemishes in the eyes of their onlookers. Another fantastic and I think very modern teaching in the book of Tzubas, page 5b, from the Academy of Rabbi Shmuel, it's such a st- an astonishing teaching. You have to listen to this very carefully. The, it's short, very short. They taught in the Academy of Rabbi Shmuel. Why is the entire ear stiff? But the earlobe is very flexible. That's the question. You think of the rabbis. What are the rabbis talking about all the time, right? <laughs> They're talking about anatomy. Why is the air, though most of it is it's stiff, it has kind of cartilage, whereas the earlobe is very flexible, says the Talmud, because if someone hears something inappropriate or some Lashon Hara or some gossip or some slander, the Almighty made you uh, a built-in earplugs, your earlobes, and they're there to be able to cover it up so you shouldn't listen. Now, why is this so modern? The reason why it's so modern is I read an article in 2009 from Newsweek, back when it was still uh, semi-reputable. And the article was about vestigial organs, the idea of we have uh, extra organs, leftover organs. So people for many years thought that the appendix was extra. You don't need it. You get to just take it out. And it turns out they're not extra. It turns out that the appendix is a uh, a place where extra bacteria that needs to be lined uh, to line the gut is is stored, and therefore, especially in places where there is uh, very little uh, clean water, your gut's going to be shedded a lot, and you need to replenish it. And that's what the you have, they might put a little pouch full with bacteria at the bottom of your uh, uh, your intestine, so it could reline the uh, the linings of the. Uh, of the, of the gut. That's what, that's, that's what they discovered. Duke University. And it gives a list, all the things that they thought. And then it ends off the article. It's a beautiful article. It ends off the article. There's only one vestigial organ that we have no idea why we have, and that's the earlobe. There's only one organ that we don't know why we have it. It's the last one, the last, and that's the earlobe. And I find it so fascinating, so beautiful. The Talmud gives us exactly one organ that it says, okay, I'm going to tell you why, why we have this. Only one. It doesn't talk about the, the, the knuckles and the knees and the tibia. Nothing. Nothing. It doesn't talk about anything. It gives us the reason why we have one. And it tells us this is for, this is a spiritual organ. This is used to blockade listening to bad things. And the scientists, they finally, after centuries, they figure out every other, every other organ and there's one we don't know. Thomas says, ah, I know you're not going to know this because this one, there isn't a physical, a biological, physiological reason. It's a spiritual reason. And therefore, the Talmud says, ah, I'll fill you in. So again, 2,000 years ago, the Talmud, the sages of Rabbi, uh, uh, the, the Academy of Rabbi Shmuel, they already figured it all out. Every, it doesn't tell us any other organ. Every other organ, eventually, scientists, the doctors, the, 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 the people who do the studies, the researchers, they'll eventually reach every one of them. They'll understand why. It might take, take them some while. They'll have to get through some hoops of heresy to get through. Sure, no problem. Eventually, they'll discover that everything was, everything was created to perfection. Everything was done beautifully. But there's one 
that the scientists won't figure out. And that's the earlobe because it does not have a physical function. It has a spiritual function. And I'll tell it to you, say the sages of the Talmud 2,000 years ago. I, I did all the work for you. Uh, and it takes us a while to realize that. But yes, now, now, now we, their, me- their message resonates really strongly. So that's a, a short introduction about Rabbi Ishmael and his academy. And by the way, there was some more teachings in the Talmud that I could have talked about, but I skipped uh, in favor of uh, trying to get to the Mishnah at hand. Uh, so the Mishnah reads, you should be yielding to a superior, pleasant to the young, and welcoming every person with joy, with happiness. So I'll, I'll give you a little secret here. If you look at the commentaries, the commentaries are not unanimous in what exactly these words mean. In Hebrew, have a kal. Kal means light. Rosh means head. Most of the commentaries say you, you should be light, which means you should be yielding. Don't be so stiff. Don't be resolute. To the Rosh, to the elders. Someone who's the oh, head. Someone who's the head's the elders. That's how most read it. But there's all kinds of other interpretations because the word kal means light, literally. But the word kal can also mean a, a variant of embarrassed, ashamed. And rosh means head. It can mean a lot of different things. And noach letishchores. Tishchores means black. Shachor is black. So again, the consensus or, or the majority of the commentaries say that means pleasant to someone who is black, meaning they have black hair. They don't have white hair yet. So we have the, the elder be yielded to the elder and be pleasant to the young person. That's how most understand. The Rama, for example, says when there's an elder, elderly person, you submit yourself to them. You be yielding to them. Subjugate yourself to them. They ask you to do something. Be quick. Be light to go help them, to go follow their orders. Thereafter, all the elders, you have to look up to them. However, with young people, people of black hair, then you should be pleasant to them, but not quite the same. You shouldn't be as reverent to them because after all, they haven't earned it yet. They're still young. Still, you have to treat everyone with joy. Be happy with everyone. Be, treat everyone with joy. And by the way, I was thinking, you know, this is a lot, very easy to describe. What, what does it mean to greet every person with joy? But it's very hard to, to implement. Every person that you meet, you greet them with joy. I've seen people that have done this. Every person they meet, they're, they're, they're radiant. They're happy. They're smiling. They're joyous. They're upbeat. They're positive. There's a certain energy that they convey. But it's very hard. You know, sometimes we, we get a little, oh, I had a bad day. I had a rough day. I'm, I'm tired. I didn't have my coffee, which, by the way, I didn't have it yet. I didn't have my coffee. And uh, it, it's, not, it's not working now. Things are not working now. It's very hard to kind of mask that. And it's easy for us to say, yeah, of course, we should treat everyone with joy. But it's much harder to actually do it. Every person, every person, and by the way, the commentaries point out doesn't say every Jewish person, every person, every person to reach out to them, to greet them with joy, with happiness, and to kind of spread those positive messages, the, the positive energy. It's a very powerful thing. And if we would actually just do that, maybe we should try to greet one person a day with joy and think about what kind of effect that would have around people around us and really around, around us, you know, if someone's happy, even if they're faking it. Sometimes you fake it till you make it. You fake it. You may believe you're happy. And you know what? There's a lot to be happy for. And if we focus on that, we'll be happier people. And I think it's a, also a good lesson in humility. Of course, when someone has someone who's older than them and they 
they yield to them and they submit to them and they're willing to accept their word, that's a very powerful thing because it, it humbles you and it creates a certain connection between you and the previous generations. Very powerful thing. My grandfather would always quote from his teacher, Rabbi Rucham. He would say that even with respect to someone who is less prestigious than you, maybe less talented, less gifted than you, ask their counsel, ask their advice, because that too is a very powerful way of achieving humility. And not don't only ask them for advice, follow their advice, abide by their counsel. And yes, you may make a slight uh, misstep, but you know what? What you'll gain in terms of humility will outweigh what you will lose. So that's, the, the I think, the most the common commentary that I've seen is that idea that the Rosh, the, the head is the elders, be light, meaning be very quick to do the will of the elders, be pleasant with the young people, but treat, but treat everyone with joy. I said the Chassid Yaivitz, one of the commentaries that I like to look at on Perkevos, he says something interesting. He says the word kal is from the word of belittling yourself. And Rosh, the head, it's a reference to the Almighty. With respect to our service of God, we don't worry about being embarrassed. We can never be embarrassed. What a powerful lesson. Sometimes when you serve God, it's a little embarrassing. You know what? He's encouraging us. Don't be someone who is embarrassed by service of God. Maybe we could even add, you know, Rabbi Shmuel spent some of his years in a Roman prison, in a Roman jail, and yet we see he knew all of Scripture. And you can imagine what it was like, the conditions, to be someone in such a foreign environment, an environment where someone who remains true to their belief would probably be derided, would be would be ashamed, would be castigated, would be reprimanded, would be made fun of. And yet he's staying by, standing by his word. He says, be resolute. Even if you're going to be embarrassed, even if you're going to be ashamed, stand by what you believe with respect to God. My grandfather, of blessed memory, used to always say that what is the barometer of faith? You know, how, how much faith do we need to have? Yeah, we all believe. We all believe. We're not atheists. We, we believe. Okay, is that enough? So he says that the barometer is like this. You get stranded on an island where everyone's atheists. Not only that, they're militant atheists and they hate people who believe. And you're by yourself and you're shipwrecked on the island and you wake up the next day and they offer you food. It's not kosher food. And you say, I'm not interested. And they say, why not? It's so healthy. It's so tasty. You say, well, it's not kosher. They start laughing at you. Everyone laughing at you. You become the laughing stock. And then you put on your tefillin to start praying. And the, everyone is just jeering at you, making fun of you. And that continues for 10 years. Someone who has full faith is someone who can withstand all that societal pressure for 10 years and not yield an inch. That's what it means here. Maybe, according to this commentary. Be willing to absorb shame for God. Because after all, all of humans, you know, they're like ants compared to God. They're nothing. Nothing. But we, of course, are very influenced by our society, by our surroundings. But here we're encouraged. It's easier said than done. But we're encouraged to be willing to be 
a receptacle of people's derision for God, be accepting of their shame, of, of shame for God. There's another interpretation of this Mishnah, again, short Mishnah, with very uh, ambiguous words that can be taken in all kinds of different, different directions. So Rashi, for example, he says that a shachvar, which is uh, the word that most interpret as being black, shachor, he interprets it as a ruler, as someone who has dominion. And he says that it means that you should be yielding to the rulers. What does that mean? So the Maharal explains, he says there's two kinds of rulers, two kinds of authorities. There's an authority who is worthy of his stature, and then there's the authority who is not worthy of his stature. You have like a ruler, king maybe, a democratically elected president, and then you have a dictator. One of them maybe has the credentials, has the rights, is deserving of that role, and one is not. And here we're told, when someone is a rosh, a head, meaning they're deserving of their stature, you should be light. You should you should run, so to speak, to go see him because this is someone worthy of your admiration. Whereas if there's someone who does not justly have their position of authority, still you should be pleasant to them. And maybe the idea is, after all, we believe that the Almighty manipulates the world and the Almighty orchestrates the world. And you know what? If this person in the position of authority, if they're if they have a position of authority over you, this is the will of God. Sometimes it doesn't make sense to us. We don't understand it. it doesn't make sense. This person is totally undeserving. In fact, you pick a random Joe out of the phone book and they're more, they're more capable, they're more qualified than this person. But you know what? If this is the will of the Almighty, sometimes you have to accept it. And maybe, maybe we could even take this back to Rabbi Shmuel himself. His formative years or some of his formative years, he's under... He's in jail with the Romans. And he looks at these barbarians. These people are in charge of the world. These people, of all the people in the world, you could have chosen anyone in the Romans you choose. And maybe that was his consolation. Listen, this is the will of God. If it's the will of God, we have to accept it. We have to be at peace with it. And we have to be pleasant with it. And we have to, even in effect, accord some honor to the people that we are subject to even though they don't deserve it, we have to give it to them nonetheless. Maybe we should even add, you know, when he says to greet everyone with joy, it's probably everyone in every situation. Who knows what the conditions were like in that Roman prison? And I would imagine Rabbi Shmuel practiced what he preached, even in the depths of despair. He doesn't know, is he going to be executed? Is he going to be redeemed? Is he going to be ransomed? Who knows? He was probably still joyous. He still greeted everyone with joy. And uh, indeed, he became worthy of sharing this message to us. It's likely, thank God, that we're not going to go through the same challenges and crises that he did. But he went through it. He prevailed. And therefore, he is the one who could give us these words of encouragement and these words of guidance and instruction to be willing to maybe accept the yoke, so to speak, foisted upon us by others and being happy and being joyous and greeting every person with joy regardless of who the person is and regardless of the situation that you may find yourself in.